So we are working our way through the book of Acts. We will be doing chapter 24 today. And as you look ahead there, if you have your Bible open, in chapter 25, we see Paul sort of appealing to Caesar. He goes before King Agrippa, and he keeps having this opportunity to present his testimony before kings and dignitaries. And then Uh, As he continues to give that testimony, God then finally sends him to Rome. Remember, the Lord Jesus spoke to him and said that I am sending you to Rome. Uh, So in chapter 27, we have this incredible journey where Paul goes on this, uh, this, uh, this luxury Disney cruise. Not really. Uh, on his way from Caesarea up to Rome, and uh, they nearly die, they nearly lose their life, and it's an amazing story. And then, of course, in chapter 28, he's arrived in Rome, and uh, he begins sort of that, two, that uh, several years, two years imprisonment in Rome, two years imprisonment, he's about to enter in Caesarea. So a lot happening in Paul's life. So as we uh, you know, just focus our efforts this morning on understanding what God has for us. Let's just uh, uh, open there to chapter 24, and let's read that together. Um, We'll have it here up on the screen if you'd like to follow along, or you can, of course, follow in your own Bible, which would be preferable. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 24. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullius... Uh, These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullius began his accusation, saying, seeing that uh, through you we enjoy great peace. Uh, Yeah, accusation. I'm sorry, I got confused there. (laughs) Because when you read it and it says he began his accusation, he starts with this this praise. Uh, Seeing that uh, through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, We accept that always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, "'Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation,' I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, 
I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a multitude nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you and object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council." Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Lord, please add your blessing to the reading of your word. Please open our hearts and minds to understand. Lord, by your spirit, fill us and teach us right now. And Lord, speak to us. And if any of us here, Lord, are just as we started the service today feeling a little Uh, out of sorts, or maybe we just haven't been hearing you clearly, may you speak very clearly to us today and bring to us not only the word we need to hear as a church, but the word that we need to hear as individuals. And only you can do that, Lord. You are so wonderful at taking your word and applying it to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, Paul seems to be having this opportunity given to him over and over to share his testimony, to share about what Jesus means to him. And remember, as Paul was going to Jerusalem and he just felt compelled by the Spirit to go, that the Spirit was witnessing to him in every city and all along the way saying, when you get there, there will be trouble, there will be chains And remember, people who were well-meaning people who came uh, alongside Paul were saying to him, Paul, don't go. And it seems only rational and logical that if you knew there was a pothole in the road ahead, you would avoid that pothole. But Paul's like, no, God has called me to drive in and through and around that pothole, whatever it may be. And it's at this point, I'd like to just sort of share a scripture to sort of set the tone for our, our study today. And it's Perhaps a familiar scripture out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and it reads as follows. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. As I was reading this passage this week and thinking about it um, and looking at it, it just The first few times I read it, I was like, Lord, what is the point here? What is it that you have for us in this? And it is often the case with my heart and probably with all of our hearts. A lot of times we read the word and we go, Lord, I'm not even sure what that means. But as we continue to read and as we continue to pray, God will speak to us. He will illumine our minds and our hearts. He will share a word with us. He will help us understand that there is a purpose to this scripture. As, as Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it has a purpose, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So in chapter 24, verse 1, you know, we find that Paul has now uh, been sent down to Caesarea, And it says there that after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders, and they hired a certain orator named Tertullus. 
And these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So you see, they, the other side, the, oppos- the opposition, they came against Paul. They brought their professional attorney, their professional speech maker. And as this person came, he began his accusation, but he did it with great flattery, didn't he? In verse 2. When he was called upon, he began by saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. I mean, doesn't it sound a little thick? If you know anything about the relationship between Rome and Israel, the Jews hated being under Roman rule. I mean, these were the people who were holding them in oppression, They were essentially uh, house prisoners in their country with the streets filled with Roman guards and Roman law was ruling. They gave the Jews some uh, latitude with their own laws so that they would sort of uh, let them feel like they had a little bit of control in the situation. But for a a Jewish orator to come and to say these words uh, is really completely untrue from their point of view. You know, we are enjoying great peace and freedom and prosperity through you. Thank you for being our governor. We love you so much. Can you imagine saying this to any political leader? I mean, it would be hard to say, unless they were a believer and they were bringing the the word of God. And so as they began to say this to him, you know, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. We do have a case to bring before you today. Thank you so much for granting uh, your attention and your time that you would listen to what we have to say. Verse 5, for we have found this man, no doubt probably pointing to Paul, a plague. Listen to how they describe Paul. A plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So the picture they're painting of Paul is that he is just a very bad man. When you call someone a plague, you're calling them the stench of death. And isn't it interesting that Paul later wrote in 2 Corinthians saying, we are are to some an aroma of life to life and to some an aroma of death. And here they are confirming that what they heard, they heard the death side. You see, the gospel is interesting, isn't it? Jesus loves you. Jesus died for your sins. And and through Jesus, God is drawing you to himself. How some people can hear that as death is beyond me. But people do. And people who are in spiritual darkness, who are are spiritually dead, this is what they hear. They, They hear the person preaching the gospel to them sometimes as a person bringing, you know, death and chains and they're trying to enslave me and they're trying to bring legalism into my life and they're going to ruin my life and take out all the fun and all of these things. And these people, of course, were seeing Paul as a person who used to be one of them, but now he's coming against them. Now he's standing against the Jewish law. Notice they said a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the whole world. Well, If you have that kind of reach where you can be described as a creator of dissension throughout the whole world, and yet that's how they saw Paul as he went 
Uh, of course, remember his, his path was he would go into a synagogue, if there was a synagogue, and he would begin there by reasoning with the Jews. And ultimately, he would end up going to the Gentiles. And notice they said here, the third accusation in verse 5, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. To the Roman mind, if you said someone was a ringleader and you called them a sect, they would see that as a threat, as a threat against Roman rule, as against a threat against Roman peace. There was this phrase in the, the, the kingdom of Rome, so to speak, called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so Rome would not tolerate anything that marked of someone bringing an upset to that peace. And so saying he's a ringleader of a sect would be painting him in such a way almost as being a seditious person, a person who would come and, and bring not hope and not life, but who would bring trouble. And so they're trying to paint a picture of Paul as someone who is a threat to the Roman Empire. Now, again, it's also interesting that Paul had to paint this picture of himself, as others also said of him when you read the New Testament, that you know, some say he was sort of a short guy and he, his, his form, his, the way he presented himself was in, in any way uh, not threatening. That he was just kind of a sm- small man, he had a lot of health issues. And so that Paul would not really present himself in such a way and yet Paul is going to be able to stand in front of these people now and give his own defense. And it said that he even tried to profane the temple And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came in and with great violence took him out of our hands. They were saying, hey, Rome, you've given us some some latitude to, to use our own law to judge these matters within our own religion. And yet Lysias, your commander came in and he disrupted what we were doing. We were going to deal with this on our own and not, not burden Rome. We didn't want to burden you guys, but here we are standing before you. And actually your guy is the one who caused this problem. And so, uh, you know, maybe he could come. Maybe he could give his thoughts on the matter. Uh, he commanded his accusers to come to you. And by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. Now, again, uh, when he uses this phrase, by examining him in their mind, that meant scourge him, beat him, not just ask him a few questions. This would be an examination under great duress. And so they are saying, if you beat him, you'll get the truth out of him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so, so, so this Tertullus was there making the case and the Jews were over here in the peanut gallery saying, yeah, yeah, amen, you know, go for it, brother. And then he says here, then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. In other words, they've got this, their professional $10,000 an hour attorney. I'm going to stand here and answer for myself. Now, why could Paul do that? Why would Paul do that? Why wouldn't he lawyer up and stand before the council? Because he had the best judge on his side. He had God at his back. Paul was there because the Lord sent him. Paul knew he was in that spot at that very moment because God had placed him there. 
It was God's providential hand that he was even standing right there before Felix. And no doubt this tape is playing in the back of his mind on the day when he got saved. And remember three days later, uh, Ananias came to him and said, the Lord has a message for you and I've come to bring it. And part of that message was, you will suffer for my sake and you will make an account before kings and people of influence on my behalf. Now, in all of Paul's ministry up to this point, for the most part, his ministry had been to churches. And he, yeah, he had been before uh, religious leaders and maybe even regional uh, leaders as, you know, like in Philippi where he was beaten and thrown in jail. But now, for the first time, the Lord is putting Paul in front of these people of influence. Now the gospel is going to places that it never would have gone before. You see, God, by his providence, is opening doors that couldn't have been opened any, way, any other way. <clears throat> How many people would be given an invitation, you know, to go to uh, the White House or to the Kremlin or to someplace like that and say, hey, why don't you come in and preach? We'd love to hear what you have to say. Instead, God has taken Paul on the side door. He's taken him in as a prisoner. And these trials are being played out before the kings and the governors and these rulers. And we're going to see this as we go forward, that God sets Paul there and he says, here, here's a microphone, talk to all these people. And so Paul begins to do that because God has put him in this place. And I say all that to say this, maybe, maybe you're in a place, as it was mentioned earlier, maybe it was a place you didn't want to be. Maybe you're wondering, how, how do I minister for the Lord? How, how am I supposed to be a light here in this place where I'm working? You know what? My company has rules. If I speak in the name of Jesus, it could be offensive. I could get fired. But the Lord has put you there. And make no mistake about it, the Lord has put you there for a purpose and for a reason. You see, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're called by his name, if you are his son or his daughter, then you belong to him. Your mouth belongs to him. Your life belongs to him. And so Paul knew that. And so he was resolved with God, wherever you put me, that's where I'm going to open my mouth and speak. If you put me in the Areopagus at Mars Hill to a bunch of heathen idol worshipers, I'll speak to them. If you put me before Felix, I'll speak there. If you put me before the Sanhedrin, I'll speak there. If you put me before a bunch of Gentiles who never heard of God, I'll speak to them. I'll just open my mouth and speak and trust that what Jesus said is true, that when I put you there, in that moment, I'll give you the words that you need. You see, sometimes we think of this as like a test, like something in school. Well, I didn't study for this test, so I'm not even going to go take the test. I'm just going to avoid the test altogether. But you can't because God is in control of your life. And so here's Paul now. He begins to speak. I know that you've been a judge of this nation. I do the more cheerfully answer for myself because you may ascertain that it's no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. If you're interested, I can give you the chronology going back to chapter 21 of those 12 days. 
and where Paul was and what happened on each of those days when he arrived in Jerusalem and he met with James and the elders and how that whole thing happened. And here we are in chapter 24, and it's only been 12 days since he first entered Jerusalem till he is now standing before Felix the governor in Caesarea. Again, I bring that up to say only God could do something like that. When, when Paul came in to Jerusalem, he was just hoping for one thing, to be able to preach the gospel to his brethren. Remember, we share those verses out of Romans 9 and 10 out of 11 and 11 out of how Paul's heart was so zealous for his people. And he even said, if it were even possible, I would give up my own salvation that they might hear and believe the gospel for Paul That moment, that pinnacle was preaching the gospel to his countrymen. But now all of a sudden God has catapulted him here before the local Roman governor in Caesarea. In verse 12, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which we've talked about this before, this was the, the phrase that people were using to refer to Christianity because they didn't know what else to call it, which they call a sect. And so now Paul's going to clarify what, uh, what, what the sect is. It's not this sect that is a threat to the Roman government. He says, they call a sect, and he says, so I worship the God of my fathers. He's defining what this looks like for Felix and for all who are listening. Here's what I'm being accused of. I worship God the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. And he says, I have hope in God. This is why I'm being persecuted. Because I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept because uh, there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. Now, Paul has written a few letters, a few books, 1 Corinthians, Romans at this point. The, the book of James has been written. So a little bit of what we know as the New Testament is out there. But Paul, as was always true of these New Testament saints, they are looking back at the Old Testament. So where in the Old Testament does it talk about the resurrection of the dead? Well, most notably, it's in the book of Daniel, chapter 12. And let me read this to you, verses 1 Uh, well, one through three and then 13. Uh, At that time, Michael uh, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was there, never what, there never was uh, since there was a nation, even to that time, and that at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who was found written in the book. So obviously he's now talking about the time of the tribulation and what God is going to do through that. And many of those, listen, verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. And then in verse 13, but you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. You see, he's not just talking here about a resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection. 
And if we had time, we could develop this and go further uh, into the book of Revelation where it talks about the resurrection of the dead and uh, the latter part of Revelation, I think it's chapter 20, where it's the great white throne judgment. And we find in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, this thing called the Bema Seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, but it's the Bema Seat, and that means the seat of rewards. And so believers, those who know Christ, will go and stand before the Bema Seat of Christ. But those who have never known God, who have never surrendered to him, they will go and stand before the great white throne of judgment. Either way, there is a resurrection from the dead. There is the resurrection from the dead. And one day, listen, one day, every single human being who has ever been born, and even those who, you know, sadly have gone before through the the horrors of abortion, they'll all stand before God. And God will say, here's your rewards for those who uh, have been under my grace and under my salvation and here for you who have never trusted and believed, unfortunately, the judgment. And so this understanding of eternal life, this understanding of the resurrection, Paul's saying, this is why I have hope. God is just, God is faithful. We read about it this morning in the Psalm that we read in Psalm 111. Paul said, they, them also, they themselves also accept this resurrection from the dead. But you see, to them, to these scribes and Pharisees, this was a concept. This was not a reality. This is like knowing material, knowing theorems and practices, understanding principles, and knowing how to use them and apply them to life. But Paul's saying, no, no, this is not a theory. This is reality. This is true. I mean, think about it. Every person dies. We, we're born, we live, we die. And what happens when we die? There has to be an answer to that. There are many who don't know Christ who have all sorts of theories. Well, you'll be, you'll be resurrected, but as an animal. Or you'll be reincarnated as some other thing, maybe a tree. And you'll give off oxygen and you'll, you'll clean the air for people. They have all these crazy ideas, but Paul's saying, no, no. The resurrection of the dead is a real thing. Everyone will stand before God. Peter understood this. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's coming back to the resurrection again, isn't he? That's what he does. He keeps coming back, not just to a resurrection, but the resurrection. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through this life, through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed when? In the last time. So one day... We will all stand before God. But here's the hope. The hope Paul has is that I will stand before God in righteousness because I am robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here's the question for us. Do we really believe this? You know, having sat there beside my mom and dad as they both passed into eternity, when you're sitting there and you're watching that happen, And I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity 
to do that. You may say that's, that's, that's gruesome, but I believe everyone should do that. But this, this is sobering. To sit beside someone as they're breathing their last and to watch it happen and to think, you know, I know they confess Christ in, in this life. And I, you know, Lord, I, I don't know, you're the judge. You, you know, did they really believe? I hope they did. And, and I sat there with my parents reading scripture to them, just saying, Lord, I want them to walk into your presence. You see, it's real. And we have to understand that this hope, it matters. Because you all know, you can go to the doctor because you're not feeling well and be told you have three months to live. God forbid. What do we do then? Where do we turn? Do we get all depressed? Do we draw inward? Do we begin to look at ourselves and, and, and you know, lament and sit there and cry in the corner by ourselves? And, or do we look at God and say, God, thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for this salvation so rich and free. Thank you that I'm going to soon get to be in your presence. You see, do we understand this? Do we believe it? Do we receive it? It is real. Eternal life, Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you. Billy Graham, when he was alive, says of a visit, this was in one of his writings, of a visit to Germany many years ago, very early in his ministry, and if you know anything about his life, God so often gave him opportunities to speak to to kings and to presidents and dignitaries, much like Paul. Uh, He was visiting with Chancellor Conrad Adenauer uh, and took him aside, and he said to Mr. Graham, do you really believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? What a question. Billy said he sat there quietly for a moment, thinking about the answer before he said to the chancellor, If I didn't believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, I would not preach the gospel of Christ. And the chancellor walked over to the window, looking out silently for a long while and said, Mr. Graham, I see no other hope for mankind than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What an amazing thing. What an amazing realization for a political leader to say. I don't know if he ever said it publicly to his country, but at least it seems this man believed. If you know anything about uh, Larry King, who was on CNN for many years, had the Larry King show and all of that, and this was a man who lived a a morally debauched life, had many wives and all of that, but he was, you know, renowned as as an interviewer. Uh, Larry King was once asked, if you could interview anyone of all the interviews you've done, who would it be? And without pause, he said, Jesus Christ. Then the person asking the question said, well, what would you ask him? And Mr. King said, I would ask him, were you really born of a virgin? And the person said, why that question? To which Mr. King replied, because if the real answer to that question is yes, then all the other questions are answered. Interesting that these people, and as far as I know, I don't, I don't know if Mr. King's ever believed on Christ, but I've seen many interviews where he sat there with Mr. Graham, he sat there with Greg Laurie, he sat there with, with Franklin Graham. I mean, people have preached the gospel to this man so many times. And yet you look at him and you say, what an example of someone, sadly, 
who's heard the gospel over and over and over, and yet has not believed and has not received. And as we talk about this issue of the hope and the resurrection, you see, one day when we stand before God, and especially for those who don't know Christ, the sad part, the, the heartbreaking part will be as they stand before him, he'll play that tape back and say, remember when Billy preached the gospel? Remember when Franklin preached the gospel? Remember when Greg Laurie preached the gospel? Remember all these times people, you've had Christians on your program, they've told you how much God loves you? I mean, how many times does the ship have to pass by you in the storm while the floodwaters are rising to rescue you and you ignore it? Paul said in verse 16, coming back to our story, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now we've looked at this, but just to mention that again, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Paul is not saying, again, that he's a perfect person. He's saying that when these things happen in my life, when I become convicted, what do I do? I bring it to God. Or if I become convicted of something against or in a relationship with another person, what do I do? I speak to them. I make it right like Jesus said, if you come to the altar and you become aware of that, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled. And so Paul is saying here, this is what I'm doing. I'm seeking to maintain a walk with God without offense toward him and without men. You know, Paul wrote later in Romans 12, or actually earlier, repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. K.P. Yohannan, who's still around, uh, who's headed up a great mission agency, mostly to India, as he's Indian of, of his descent. He said, and I've heard him say it many times at conferences, at the end of every day, before I lay my head down, I say to the Lord, Lord, how do we do today? Are you pleased with me and how I have conducted myself today? So with respect to God, he's crying out to God, saying, Lord, are you and I okay? Am I, are you pleased with me? Is there anything I need to confess to you? And then with respect to others, also asking that question, saying, is there anyone else that I perhaps need to go to and to, to be reconciled to? Or maybe there's somebody you just want to put on my heart that I need to pray about that maybe I've never viewed them in a favorable light. Maybe they've just kind of gotten under my skin. And I hope that you've never said this, but here's the human heart, right? Sometimes we wish somebody was dead or we wish somebody was out of our lives because we just don't like them, because they irritate us. Maybe God wants to deal with those things. Paul said, I strive to live in good conscience before God. Now, after many years, Paul going on in verse 17, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, and in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the mob nor with the tumult, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Remember, Paul's referring back to they thought he had come in and brought an uncircumcised and unpurified Gentile into the temple and all of that. And Paul's saying, look, you know, if there's evidence against me, I welcome it. But where's the evidence no one has produced a shred of evidence against me so far. Verse 20, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me. 
while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement, which I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So he brings it up again. I'm on trial for believing in the resurrection. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. In other words, I'll talk to him. I'll find out what he has to say. I'll get his point of view before I make a decision. In essence, Felix is just putting this off. He doesn't want to deal with it. But in verse 23, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So this is something that's interesting that God used, that Felix did, that throughout the four years of Paul's captivity, two years here in Caesarea and two in Rome, it seems to be this set the tone for his captivity. Was he in prison? Yes, but he was given freedom within the prison, within the confines of the Roman government to have people come and minister to him and provide and visit and all of that. This was very unusual. So God, again, providence, God is taking Paul, ushering him into the presence of these kings and these dignitaries. He's going to send him to Rome. We're going to follow that to the end of this story. And as he sends him there, he's yet going to give him great freedom. Paul, you've, you've served me. Remember all the times Paul has been beaten and all the things that have happened to him, and God's like, you need some time to heal, bro. So you're going to get four years in a maximum security prison with all of the comforts of life, and instead of doing what you've done, which is gone out and minister and travel all those thousands of miles. Remember a few studies back, we looked at all the miles that Paul had traveled. And now he's going to say, I'm going to bring people to you, and I'm going to give you a new idea. You start writing letters and sending them out to the churches. You take what I've given to you and you start writing it and sending it to them and you're going to bless people. Although Paul, I'm sure, probably didn't know it at the time, of course, this became a huge part of the New Testament, didn't it? What God did through the apostle Paul. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Interesting woman, just to give you a little background on her. Drusilla's great-grandfather was Herod the Great and Matthew II, who tried to kill all the babies. Her great-uncle, Herod, one of the Herods, killed John the Baptist, and it was the Herod reigning during the trials of Jesus. Remember, that was the Herod that, that John was preaching to, John the Baptizer, and he was telling Herod his sin. He was pointing it out, and Herod didn't like it. And remember, Herod's wife, of course, asked for John's head on a platter. And then in Acts chapter 12, uh, this Herod, her father, um, killed the apostle James. So Drusilla was was a Jewess, but she came from this line of Herods who were very evil men. And so Felix probably said, well, maybe she'll make some sense out of this. Maybe she has some insight. And so she's like, I want to wait till she comes and let her hear what Paul has to say. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, this is Paul. As he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was putting his finger on issues in Felix's life. Righteousness. Felix had a reputation for being one of the most brutal rulers 
Uh, he had many people killed. Uh, he had people persecuted and prosecuted uh, unjustly. Self-control, he was also known to have been a womanizer. In fact, Drusilla was his brother's or brother-in-law's wife, and he essentially stole her away from him. Um, and he says, and the judgment to come. Now, this is what Paul's been talking about in some respect with the resurrection. And so as Paul is standing before him and Paul is preaching these words, you know, and obviously there's other words here that Paul preached that aren't recorded. He reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. These things spoke to Felix, but they convicted him. And when conviction comes, conviction is to drive us to the Lord. But Felix, rather than being driven to the Lord, wanted to stuff it down and pretend like it didn't happen. And uh, he didn't want to listen to what was being said. He was enjoying his life too much. He said, go away for now. And when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. How many people have said that kind of a thing? Have said, you know, when it's more convenient, I will, I'll listen to, I'll think about it, you know. When it says that Felix was afraid, the word could be translated trembled, frightened, alarmed, terrified. So the Lord, the Holy Spirit, man, he spoke right to Felix's heart. But this response of procrastination, go away for now when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. You know, it's said, never put off until tomorrow what you can do today. One person said, procrastination is the thief of time. An English proverb said, one of these days is none of these days. You know how we say, well, one of these days I'll get around to it. Procrastination is the enemy of the soul. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul, by the Spirit, wrote... For he, that is God, says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If the Lord is speaking to your heart right now, meaning today, then you should respond to him here and now. Not later, not tomorrow, not next week, not when you think you will have a more convenient time. You see, the scriptures tell us that our life is like a vapor. We're here today and gone tomorrow. I used to have a friend, a guy I used to hang out with, and uh, a man who knows the Lord, but he, he, this, these things, this came to my mind while I was reading this, and I was like, man, I just, every time he said it, there was like a dagger in my heart. He was fond of saying, when things settle down, then I'll deal with this or that. Or uh, when, when this thing happens over here, once, you know, once my child graduates from college, you know, whatever, make up the excuse. When that happens, then I will focus more on this. A lot of us say that. A lot of people say those kinds of things, especially in regard to spiritual things, especially in regard to salvation. However, these are things that should not be. We have to be careful It's a slide, it's a slippery slope. Once we go down this slope of procrastination, I'll deal with it later. You may not have later. You see, when you say, I'll deal with it later, you are presuming 
that you know what tomorrow holds and that you will wake up tomorrow and that you will have time tomorrow. You don't know what your life is like. James said, come today or tomorrow. You know, we'll go to such and such a city, do this and that and make a profit. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Meanwhile, he, that is Felix, also hoped that money would be given him by Paul and that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. So he was looking for a bribe. That's what he really wanted. He didn't want to deal with the truth. There's this other verse here as I was reading about this issue of procrastination. And uh, I wrote it down here. And it's, it's an interesting one. We've, uh, you, if you've read the New Testament, you've read this. Luke chapter 9. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. In other words, when this happens or that happens, then I'll come and follow you. Then Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another said, "Um, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You might say, Jesus, that's harsh. But he's dealing with something in our heart that's harsh. And that's lying to ourselves. It's lying to the Holy Spirit. It's saying, God, I'll do this later. I'll I'll come back to it later. Here we are in verse 27. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do, do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So it would seem that Felix, as far as we know, never really responded. He probably heard Paul many times. But now this this other guy comes in, it's time for a changing of the guard, so to speak. And so he moves on. Who knows what happened to Felix? But certainly the Lord took the greatest preacher of the gospel that there ever was and brought him to his doorstep so that he could hear the word of God. I want to close with this one thought here. I entitled the message today, I have hope in God, because that's what Paul said as he was making his defense, because that is what struck me out of all of this. And what does it mean if you say along with Paul, if you believe those words, I have hope in God, what does it look like? There's the uncertain kind of hope that the world has. I hope I win the lottery, something like that. But that's just wishful thinking at best. But then there's the hope the Bible offers. And the word hope in the Bible can be defined as follows. The confident expectation of future good according to God's word. And when Paul said, I hope in God, what might he have been saying? And I've got a few scriptures here. It's impossible to share all of them because there are so many. But in Romans chapter 4, where Paul was recounting the story of Abraham, the father of the faith, God had made him a father of many nations, we're told in Romans 4.17. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. 
This is the kind of faith that Paul had that every believer should have where we understand that God can do things. He, he can speak the worlds into existence. And if God has called you, called me to do a certain thing, to be a certain place, then God can make it happen. Verse 18, Romans 4, who contrary to hope, Abraham in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body. Remember, Abraham was like 90 years old when God said, hey, you're going to you're going to have like a thousand kids. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. In other words, he believed what God said. Do you believe there's a resurrection? Do you believe that God's in control of your life? Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, faith secures our salvation. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. For the believer, our hope is a hope of the glory of God. Why? Because we'll be ushered into his presence, not cast away from his presence. In Romans 8, one of the most amazing passages in the Bible to me. Listen to this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The resurrection being in God's presence. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In other words, the liberty that God will give us before his presence one day. He will bring creation along. He will restore creation to its former glory, which it had in the beginning of the book of Genesis. And we know, Paul says, that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, earthquakes and all of these things. These are signs to us that God is coming back. These are signs to us that creation is groaning, longing to be in its redeemed state. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. I have hope in God. For we were saved in this hope, but this hope that is the but hope that is not, excuse me, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I have hope in God. You see, hope by definition is rooted in faith. See, hope and faith drive us. Hope and faith are the essence of who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. There's the here and now, there's the truth of his word, but there's also the the now and the not yet. There is that which is to come. Finally, I'll close with this. Again, there's so many. In 1 Corinthians 15, which is we kind of call the resurrection chapter, Paul wrote, for if the dead 
do not rise, verse 16, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since man came by death, excuse me, uh, for, by, for since by man came death, by man, capital M, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You see, this is the hope that Paul had in God. This is the hope that he wants us to have in God. Again, there's so much more but I'll close with this one verse, 1 Peter three fifteen. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to those, excuse me, to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. This hope is not just to be something that we celebrate internally or that we read in our Bibles or that we go to church and talk about. This is a hope it says, should be visible to others, that others might say, what is this hope that you have? Because he says here, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. What that means is that hope that we have has to somehow be manifested to others. How is that? Well, first we have to believe it, but then we have to live like we believe it. We have to live like we believe it. Meaning that we do believe it, that we receive it, that it's truth. The hope that we can't see is true because God's word said it's true. And Paul is saying, I believe, and I believe the rest of the scriptures verify this, that this hope has to be anchored deep in our soul. This hope has to be real. And when we go to a funeral... You know, here, when someone says, hey, can you pray for so-and-so, this just happened. My first question is, do they know Christ? Because that changes the way I pray. If they know Christ, then I'm praying that God would deliver them and heal them and, you know, all those things, right? But also, that they would stand firm through it and God would use them as a witness. Now, what about those who don't know Christ? They say, well, yeah, these people don't know Christ, and I'm not praying that all these things will happen, healing. I'm praying that they'll find Christ. Their greatest need, the greatest need, do you believe this? The greatest need of every human heart is to know Jesus Christ. If that's true, then that colors. Remember I was talking last week about a biblical worldview? That colors how I see people. Somebody calls up, they send a message, hey, pray for so-and-so, this happened, they were a terrible accident, whatever. Man, I'm so sorry to hear that. Do they know Christ? Because now I know how to pray for them. If they don't know Christ, that's what they need. They don't need to be healed. They need Jesus. So I have hope in God. This hope has to manifest itself in our lives in such a way that God is honored, God is glorified, and people say, you know, you're different. You think differently. You act differently. What's going on with you? Are you smoking weed? Or do you know Jesus? Are you chewing on gummies? Are you chewing on the word of God? What's making the difference in your life? I hope it's Jesus. I hope it's the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us.
I hope it's because you've met Jesus. You've had an encounter like Paul. Maybe it wasn't like his encounter on the road to Damascus, but you've had your own Damascus experience and it's forever altered your life in such a way that people are saying something's different about you. I want to know what it is. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would awaken this hope within us and that we would be lights in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation and that you would use us for your glory, God. Lord, Lord, if, there's, if we're hiding it, if we're, if we're masquerading our Christianity, if we're putting it beneath a shroud and we're not allowing it to come forth because of the fear of man, uh, Lord, your word tells us that the fear of man brings a snare. May we not be afraid of people. But if there's any fear in our lives, Lord, let it be to fear the one who can cast the soul into hell, like Jesus said. Let us have a wholesome, honorable fear toward you. And Lord, cause this hope that Paul said, I have hope in God and this is why I'm here. This is why I'm being persecuted. May the same be said of us, that because of the hope that you have given to us, that you have awakened within us the understanding of who you really are, of what this whole thing means about believing in Jesus and resurrection of the dead and being saved from our sins and having forgiveness, that this is real, that it matters. Lord, shake us up, stir us up, that we might be your sons and daughters in the world and that people would see us, that they would... When, when we get on these business calls at work and people say, how are we doing today? Yeah, to be able to say, Lord, better than I deserve. And let them say, what do you mean? Oh, I'm glad you asked. His name is Jesus. Lord, in these last days, give us a boldness such as we've never had before. But let it begin with that personal renovation of the heart. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and lead us wherever you want us to go. Lead us into those fields that are white unto the harvest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.